The text that we're looking at today is Luke 12, 35 to 59. Um, as you can tell by just the amount of verses that are included in this text, this is going to cover a lot of ground. And so what I'm going to do is not read the text at the beginning of the sermon, but we're going to work through the text as part of the sermon. I've printed the text of the sermon for you on the note sheet that you grabbed on your way in, and I've tried to leave enough margin and space in between the letters and words so that you can circle things, highlight things, underline things, write a little note in the text as we work through it. Because rather than going very deep, we're going to kind of skim the surface across this text because all of these 25 verses speak about the same concept. Uh, It's the end of the world and how we ought to prepare for that end of the world. Now, for those of you who maybe are not Christians or considering Christianity or just unsure if you're a Christian, this is going to be maybe a little bit challenging for you because you're going to think, well, I don't believe that Jesus is coming at the end of the world, or I'm not sure that he's coming at the end of the world, or Christians always talk about the end of the world and it's sort of weird. Um, And I understand that a lot of this maybe is not going to be specifically speaking to your situation or worries. But what I would challenge you to consider today is the necessity of a judgment day. Really, no person can live if they don't have a judgment day. What do I mean by that? Um, If you do not have some sort of transcosmic, transcendent, ultimate authority that is going to right every wrong, fix every problem, undo every evil, then how can you live day to day? I mean, if you don't have that, then nice guys always finish last, evil people get away with evil, the bad things that happen in this world, there's no way to undo them. I was just watching, it came up on my, my YouTube feed, uh, a video of Mark Zuckerberg, who's the, the creator of Facebook, uh, testifying before the U.S. Senate, and one of the senators was asking him about allegations that his platform had led uh, teenage girls to self-harm and even suicide. Which, by the way, tangent, should make you think twice about letting your kids use social media, or frankly, letting yourself use social media, but that's a tangent. When they asked Mark Zuckerberg about this, they said, what did you do to compensate these families? I mean, you have families sitting behind you who lost loved ones, whose daughters are severely depressed. What did you do? And of course, Mark Zuckerberg's answer was terrible. He didn't say anything. But let's just for a second consider, what if he did say something? What if he said, pick a a number. I gave them each $200 million. Would that be sufficient? Like, if your daughter committed suicide and Mark Zuckerberg said, here's $200 million, is that enough to undo the wrong? Absolutely not. Like, there's nothing in some sense that any human can do to repay certain offenses. And so if you don't believe that there is a judgment day coming where there is someone who is going to transcosmically right all wrongs, how can you live? How can you go forward? How can you try to be good knowing that none of it's going to count for anything anyways? But here's the the double-edged sword of that thought. If there is a judgment day, then how can you live? Because you know maybe you didn't lead young girls to self-harm, but you've done some things that you're not proud of. Some things that you know are not acceptable, some things that are evil, and if there is a judgment day to right all the wrongs that everyone else has committed, that includes you. That includes the the evil that you've perpetrated against other people, the hurt and harm that you've done that you can't undo or make up for. If there's no judgment day, how can you live? But if there's a judgment day, how can you live? 
So the beautiful message that the gospel gives us is that Jesus Christ is promising that at that end of all things, he is going to right all wrongs, and there is a way for you to be forgiven for all the wrongs you have committed. And it is by letting him take your place, by letting him die on your cross, by letting him suffer the eternal wrath and punishment of the almighty and eternal God, so that you can go free. Now, if you believe that, then this message is specifically going to speak to how do you prepare for that last day? If you're not there yet, I'll just ask you to consider that thought this week. Do I believe that there's a judgment day? If I don't, how can I live? If there is a judgment day, how can I live? So let's dive into the text for today. Luke chapter 12, verses 35. I've split the text into three parts. You can see on your note sheet, the first part is being ready for the end. Jesus starts the text by saying this, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning. As Jesus starts the text this way, this would immediately have rung in the ears of his Jewish listeners as an echo of the Passover command. You remember the Passover in the book of Exodus, God sent Moses to bring his people out of Egypt and he sent 10 plagues. And the 10th of those plagues was the plague of the firstborn, where God said, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every house that does not have blood of a lamb painted on its doorframe. Now, in the context of that command, he gives some instructions. And a couple of those things ring in this text that Jesus just said. Remember, he said, be dressed and ready and keep your lamps burning. Well, in Exodus 12, where God gives the commands for how to practice the Passover, he describes it as something that happens at night. So lamps would have been burning. There's no electric light at that time. They would have had lamps in order to eat their Passover meal, their Passover lamb. And God commands that when you eat it, you should eat it this way. Your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. That phrase, your cloak tucked into your belt, is the exact same Greek phrase as what Jesus says here when he says, be dressed, ready for service. So as, as his hearers would have heard him say this, they would have thought, Passover. Now what does that do to them? Well, it, it, it conjures in their mind this idea that God is going to do something miraculous and powerful, world-altering in some sense, and they have to be prepared for it, ready to go. Well, this is what Jesus is saying. Be dressed like your ancestors were for the Passover, ready to leave Egypt, because you soon will leave this Egypt called the sinful world. He says that we be dressed and ready with our sandals, or excuse me, dressed and ready with uh, our lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. He describes us here like servants, but what's interesting is in Greek, the word servant is actually not what's there. The, the word servant is imported by the translators because of what the text says a little bit later. But interestingly here, it says men. This word translated servants is just the generic word for men. And I think that's significant because even though Jesus will call these same characters servants later in the text, what he's doing is he's dignifying these people. He's saying they are servants, yes, but they are more than servants. They are dignified by their master as valuable to him. They don't simply do a function. They are those whom he loves. He says that we're prepared waiting for the master to return from a wedding banquet. Most commentators will say this is specifically the master's wedding banquet. He is going to get married. He is bringing his bride back home, which should conjure for us the ideas of Jesus whose bride is the church, whom he has made holy by his blood and the washing of rebirth and renewal and the Holy Spirit in your baptism. 
And you should also think about how he goes to heaven to celebrate the joy of being with those believers who have died already, and he's coming back from that wedding banquet for us. So we're supposed to be prepared for him to do this, to come back on that last day. And so Jesus says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. When it says watching here, of course, we think of maybe like sitting at the picture window of our house, looking out and waiting for the car of our relative or someone to come. That's what we mean by watching, except for the word is a lot more active than this. The word literally means something like to be alert. Um, So the idea is not that you're just standing staring, but that you are taking in all of your surroundings, that you're aware of what's happening around you. And you know this maybe if you've been in a place where you've never been before. Like if you're doing your commute or you're walking to the grocery store that you always go to, like you don't think about what's happening around you. But if you're in a new neighborhood or you're driving on a street that you don't normally drive on, you're going to a different location, uh, a different grocery store than you normally go to, you're, you're very aware of what's going on. That's the idea here. That we're not just like sliding through life, but that we're paying attention to what's going on around us. That we're paying attention that God is doing his work and will come back eventually to find us. It's also interesting here that it says it will be good for those servants. When we hear that, we think, well, Jesus wants us to be ready. He wants us to prepare so that we won't be in trouble. But actually, what the word here is, is the the Greek word makoroi, which means blessed. It's the same word that shows up in Jesus' Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And really, probably the best translation of that word, in my opinion, is happy, joyful. Joyful are the people who suffer in this world because that's not going to be their eternal fate. And here he says, it will be joyful for those servants when their master finds them watching. In other words, when they see him come, it will be a good thing. And you know this, the suffering that this world produces is unbearable at times, but you have the promise, Christian, that Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. It will be good for you on that day. In fact, even better, not just that Jesus would come and save you, but that it says that he will dress himself to serve. Interesting, right? The master comes home, and instead of ordering his servants around and saying, do this, prepare this, this is what I need, he sees his servants waiting, he walks in the door, and he immediately draws up his clothes, rolls up his sleeves, and serves his servants. This is the gospel, friends. No other God works like this. Every other God says, you serve me and then I will dispense blessings to you. God, the true God found in Jesus Christ says, I will do good to you. Not because you're good, not because you've done the right thing, but simply because I am good and I love you. Look, if your value, your, your reason to work in this world is because you think you're earning value for yourself by your effort, you will eventually come short. You will find the end of yourself. But if your value, your reason for moving forward is based on the work of Jesus, then it is always certain and it is always full. It is everything that you need. He comes to serve you. It says he will have them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants when that happens. In fact, he doubles down. He says it will be good for them even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Even if it comes at a time that is extremely uncomfortable. Some of you are up way late into the night, and that's fine, but the majority of us are not because it's hard to be up that late. It's hard to stay awake, to stay alert, because you're tired. You've had a long day. 
It's hard when things happen at night because you can't see, and yet Jesus says, even if I would come at the most inconvenient time, you would be so happy about that. Even if I came when the world was falling apart, you would be so happy about that. You would be so blessed because I'm going to make all things right. He then continues with a different metaphor. After picturing the servants waiting for their master, he changes his metaphor to a thief coming in the night. He says, understand this, if the owner of a house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So he changes the metaphor. He says that the coming of Jesus, his coming is going to be like a thief. Now, this is interesting, I think, for a number of reasons. First of all, that Jesus compares himself to a thief. Right? We generally think of thieves as bad things, and that's true enough, but Jesus has this like, disregard for what you think of him when he's going to save you. He like, doesn't care if you've been good or you've been bad. He's not like Santa Claus who's checking his list, seeing if you're naughty or nice. He's, he's coming, and he's going to save you. Get out of the way. He's coming. He's doing his work. He's a thief. He's not letting you know. He's getting it done, and God be praised. But it doesn't depend on me. It depends on Jesus for me. But second, I think this thief metaphor is interesting because usually we only take it one layer deep. Right? Think about this. When we think about the thief metaphor that Jesus gives us, we think, oh, it's going to be surprising and we're not going to know when it comes. But I think there's a little bit more than that. While that is true enough, think about how he sets this up. He says, if the owner of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So he says, we, like people who own houses, are not going to be prepared for the thief to come if we're not thinking about how to prepare for the thief. Or maybe to say it differently, um, if somebody told you a thief is going to break into your house soon, what would you do? Since you don't know the timeline, you don't know if it's going to be tonight or next week or next year, what are you going to do? Are you just going to try to stay awake and sit on your couch and watch the front door or the window that you think he might break into? No, you're not going to do that because you don't know when he's coming. That would work if they said, the thief is coming tonight. (laughs) But since you don't know when he's coming, what are you going to do? You're going to install a security system, probably. Maybe you're going to plan with your family. What happens? What do we do? What's our evacuation plan? Or how do we stay safe if the thief comes into our house when we're here? We're going to maybe run like a practice drill. Like, kids, what do we do? If we hear a window break, you're going to train. You're going to train yourself to be ready, to be prepared for what's going to happen. That's what Jesus says we would do also. And if I, can, if I could say it like this, I think a lot of Christianity, like practiced Christianity, falls into this trap. We spend a lot of time trying and not a lot of time training. You understand this dis- distinction? We spend a lot of time trying, we spend not very much time training. Um, maybe to put it in a different picture, uh, if you wanted to run a marathon, would you just go out this afternoon and go for 26.2 miles? You, you might try, you might have the desire, you might put the effort in, but more than likely you're not going to be able to pull that off because trying is not enough. Trying can get you started, but trying doesn't build you into the person you need to be to run 26.2 miles. You have to train. You have to start by running half a mile, maybe getting off the couch and walking, whatever it takes to get you started, and then you build from there. I find that so much of Christianity is trying, not training. We walk out of this building and we say to ourselves, well, I'll just try harder this week. Whatever the pastor said, I'm going to try. God says train. God says prepare. 
God says, put structures in place, put disciplines in place. Because I might not be coming tonight. I might come next week or I might come next year. And who knows what you're going to have to prepare for in that time. For you, I would challenge you to consider what spiritual disciplines are in your life. Are you just trying harder to be a Christian? That's good for a moment. But if you want to grow into the Christian that God calls you to be, that's going to require training. It's going to require discipline, like person training for a marathon. It's going to require cutting things out of your life. And isn't that interestingly kind of what Jesus already has said to us? He said, be dressed and ready to go with your lamps burning. If you know the King James translation of the Bible, the phrase there was, gird your loins, which is not something we say anymore, but I think it's actually beautifully vivid because what it's communicating is not just that we would be dressed like we'd have clothes on, but specifically for them that they had these long robes that they had to pull up in order to be able to move quickly. Right, so girding your loins is tying that fabric up from your ankles so that you can run. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, tie up the things that are in your way. Pull those things back because they're hindering you as you grow and prepare for Jesus to come. And so what is that? Is that how you spend your money, just however you want? Maybe discipline yourself to not use all of it, to give some of it away to your neighbor who is in need or your church who can use it to spread the gospel. What does that mean for your maybe time and your schedule? Do you just spend it however you want or however your boss tells you to spend it? Or do you think, maybe I'll discipline myself to be in Christian community with others or to be here for worship at 945 for communion every single week? Will it mean that I set aside time for prayer? I mean, I just heard this a couple weeks ago. Martin Luther used to say, on my most difficult days, I pray the most. And, and what he meant by that is like, the days when I have the most stuff to do, I pray the most, which we think is just totally backwards, don't we? I can't spend a lot of time praying because I got a lot of stuff to do. He says the opposite. I got all this stuff to do, so I got to pray a lot. What if we would do that? And you can go down the list of, of something beyond just your money or your time. Like, what do you value? How do you entertain yourself? What do you prioritize for the future? Any of these things. What do you need to gird up to be prepared, to be ready when Jesus comes? So Jesus says this, and then Peter interjects. He says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And this is a fine question. Peter's just asking for clarification. Are you saying this to us because we're disciples, Jesus? Or are you saying this is true for everybody? And Jesus' answer is kind of a non sequitur. Like, if you were Peter, you might roll your eyes when Jesus starts answering this way because he doesn't really answer the question directly. But we do, from the answer, figure out what Jesus is saying. He says, Who then is the wise and faithful and wise manager who puts the master, or whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? In other words, he says, that thing that I just said, that is for everybody. But this part specifically is about the wise, faithful managers, those who I put in positions of authority over my church. So if you want to maybe note it this way, the first part, Jesus is speaking specifically to all Christians and here narrows that focus then to ministers of the gospel. Now you might think ministers of the gospel and you might think me, right? Pastors, um, true, but more. Fathers, church leaders, Parents, right? Husbands, like those whom God has put in spiritual authority over other people. God calls you to hear this as you prepare for the end. What does he say? Who then is the wise and faithful manager whom his master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance? Because you see this in a spiritual context, it goes a step further. What is the food that the minister of the gospel gives you? 
Take and eat. Take and drink. Not just food for your lunch, but food for your soul. One of the things that God prioritizes as we prepare for the end is the gathering of believers around the Lord's Supper. For those of you who are Christians, you should be in the Lord's Supper. That's what God wants for you. That is not just for your forgiveness and for your salvation and for your certainty, but also for the gathering of Christians together, that unity that we experience. It's not optional. Like, are you saved by, by going to the Lord's Supper? In some sense, yeah. If you don't go, are you not saved? No. But you should be here. Like, this is the food that sustains your soul until Jesus comes back. And it is what God calls ministers of the gospel to disperse. He says, it will be good. They will be blessed. That servant who, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose... And the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and to get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So Jesus says, if you're a minister of the gospel, if I've given you responsibility to take care of the spiritual well-being of another person, and you take advantage of that person, you use your authority to hurt or to harm or to extract value from that person rather than giving value to that person, it will not be good for you. In fact, he says arguably one of the most brutal things that Jesus says in the entire gospel, that the master, God, will cut that person to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. I mean, does that mean that if you're a pastor and you take advantage of your congregation, like you're going to hell, no questions asked? Maybe. I mean, it sure seems like that. I don't know for absolute certain. But what I would encourage all of us to consider is how seriously God challenges us to take our responsibility of spiritual formation. He says, you, if you are called to serve with the good word, you are to do that faithfully, even though you might have more freedom or more opportunities or more authority, and you might be tempted to use those things for your advantage, you use them to serve. For those of you who aren't in a position of ministry of the gospel, this is a good comfort too. Because very frankly, I could pull the wool over your eyes. Like for most of you, I know the scripture well enough, I'm a decent enough communicator that I could trick you. And in some sense, you maybe would never be able to, to find that out. But you have the comfort of knowing that if I would do that, which by the way, I'm not, if I would do that, God would cut me to pieces and assign me a place with the unbelievers. So let God be the one who protects you, those who are under spiritual authority. He continues, says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So he says there's a sliding scale in some sense. If you're unknowingly teaching a false thing about the gospel, then it's going to be in some sense less for you. But if you know better and you still teach lies, if you still lead people astray, if you still take advantage of the people under your care, the punishment of God will be great. So Jesus says, be ready for the end. This is how we prepare. We train ourselves. We come to the word and the sacrament, and we who are in charge of serving that good uh, meal to, your, to God's people do so faithfully. Then Jesus shifts to part two, how he feels about this whole thing. He starts in verse 49 and says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. 
He says, I, wish to, I come to bring fire on the earth. Now, a couple things to notice about what he says here. First of all, he says, I have come to bring fire. So I have come means this time that he comes, he's bringing fire. Oftentimes we think maybe that's what Jesus is going to do at the end of time. He's going to bring a fire of destruction on all that's evil. That is true. That's just not what Jesus is talking about here. Here he says, I have a fire that I have come to bring this time that I am here. And that fire is a fire of purification. In fact, the word pure in English comes from the Greek word for fire, which is pur. Fire purifies. You know this if you understand how smelting works, right? You, you take a, a ore and you burn it at a really high temperature so that all of the dross falls off and what you have left is solid gold or silver or some other precious metal. When you apply fire, you purify. Jesus says, I have come with a fire to bring on the earth, a purification to bring on the earth. And what is that? It's the gospel. To purify God's people, to push away all of their sin onto my account and to let them walk blameless before God. And he says, I wish it was already kindled. I want to do this so badly. I love them so dearly and they suffer because of sin and I want to take it from them. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, to hear the emotion of your Savior as he considers the work that he's going to do for your salvation. He deeply desired. As God said in Hebrews, the joy set before him led him to endure the cross and scorn its shame. The joy of knowing that he could save you from your sins. But he says, I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am until, under until it is completed. He says, I can't do it now. It's not the time. There's a baptism waiting for me, and I'm going to undergo that. And I'm constrained. I can't do anything to purify my people yet until that happens. Now, the use of the word baptism here is maybe a little bit challenging for some of us because we think of baptism and we think of water applied to somebody with God's name for the salvation and forgiveness of their sins, for their acceptance into God's family, the pledge of a clean conscience. That's what we think about. So what is Jesus doing here when he says, I have a baptism to undergo? Well, I think Martin Luther actually is really helpful on this. In his Genesis commentary, he says this, baptism and death are interchangeable terms in the scripture. Therefore, Paul says in Romans 6, 3, as many of us have been baptized, have been baptized into the death of Christ. Likewise, Christ says in Luke 12, 50, that's the verse we're looking at, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. And to his disciples, he said in Mark 10, you will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, referring to their death. He says the baptism here is death, which by the way, is what happens here. We die in the waters of baptism. Our old self with all of its sin is buried with Christ in baptism, Paul says in Romans. So a new person, a new life comes out of that water. A person who loves God and wants to serve God. And so when Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, he's saying, I'm going to die. I have to die the death that all of you will be connected to in your baptism so that you don't have to die it. Because what happens when you die? You don't have to die again, right? Well, Jesus died. And in baptism, you were, you were connected to him so that you do not have to die. You will live, brothers and sisters, because of what Christ has done for you. He says, what constraint I am under until it is completed. Right? I wish I could do this. I wish I could pull it off right now, but, but God's timing is not my timing. I will suffer when it is time. So he continues, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. To which you say, hold on, rewind 10 chapters. 
We had a whole company of angels who appeared before a whole bunch of shepherds and literally said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Jesus' origin story is peace on earth. And here's Jesus saying, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I came to bring division. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he is saying that he's going to bring both. The peace on earth between God and humans, right, as he says, as the angels say here, to those on whom his, God's favor rests, that's accomplished in Jesus. You have peace with God. But with your neighbor? Often not as much. In fact, the gospel very often produces some of the sharpest divides between people that we ever see. Isn't it true that as soon as you tell, yourself, tell somebody you know that you're a Christian, things change? It causes a sharp divide between people. Jesus says the gospel will do that because the gospel is binary. The gospel is Jesus is God. You must submit to him. You must trust and follow him. No other path will suffice. And that's hard. We, we want there to be multiple paths to God. There's a reason our society thinks this. Jesus says, no, there's division. It's clear cut. You are with me or you are against me. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring division. And isn't it the case that as he does that, it most often manifests itself in families? And I know I look around this room and I see some of you who have family members who are not believers and I've sat with you and talked with you about how that feels. Jesus says as much, right? He says, from now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That sounds all too real for some of you, doesn't it? But maybe we even need to press it a step further because for this culture, family was primary, Right? In a way that we, I don't even think we can really imagine. Maybe if you come from a traditional culture, you get this a little bit, like how important family is. But modern Western people, we don't get this. But what Jesus is saying is that the most foundational, important, life-defining thing about you might be broken because of me. Because of the message of the gospel, that might fall apart. Are you willing to let that happen? For some of you, it might be family. For some of you, it might be the lifestyle that you wish you could live. For some of you, it's the reputation that you want to have with other people. I mean, it could be any number of things, but, but are you willing to let that thing fall apart because of Jesus? Because that's what Jesus came to do, not to let you live your comfortable life, but to give you a purification of fire that burns away all the excess so that what is presented to God is completely pure. Jesus wants to do this for you. He loves to do it for you because he sees you suffer with sin And though he knows it's not only going to hurt him, but it's also going to hurt you to lose those things that are important. He says, I wish I could do it. I wish that fire was kindled with what constraint I'm under until I go through my baptism. And so finally, we get to part three. Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain. And it does. And when a south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? So he makes a very easy comparison. He says, you guys know how to look at the weather, right? You see clouds, rain's coming, right? But then he uses this really powerful word in the context. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you've seen this before. He calls them hypocrites. Why hypocrites? 
Because they say that they are doing one thing, but they do something else. They say, I am aware, but they live like they're not. They say, I'm paying attention, but they're actually not. They look like they're paying attention as they look at the weather, but they look at the Son of God and they do not discern who he is. And so Jesus' challenge for us is as we prepare for the end, how to watch for the end, in the same way we would look at the world and make our decisions about what clothes to wear on the basis of the weather report, that we would also look at the Son of God and say, what he says is true and it is going to happen and I ought to live my life in accordance with it. And that'll be hard. It'll require sacrifice. It'll require discipline. But Jesus says, how many of you sit and listen to my word and then go back to your life the same way it was when you came in? Would you make changes? If I told you that the snow is going to melt this afternoon and we're going to have a 15-degree day, would you change? Yes. If I tell you Jesus is coming back, will you change? Jesus challenges us with this thought, and so he says it this way, as you are going to your, with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge will turn you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you into prison. And I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. He says, when you walk with me toward the end of the world, where God is going to judge all things, make peace with me. Because there is a judgment day coming and you will be on one side or the other of this. This is binary. I did not come to bring peace where everybody's the same, but division. There will be those who are saved and those who are not. Make peace with me. Repent to me and I will save you. In fact, I want to save you. I have a fire that I want to go undergo for you to purify you because I love you so dearly. Don't just walk along with me. but Talk to me. Listen to me. Make peace with me. So let's summarize. How do you prepare for the end? First, you get rid of what hinders you. You gird your loins in some sense. You look at what your life has that hinders you from following Jesus and preparing for his coming, and you get rid of it. Second, you'd be willing to lose what you love, whether it's family or something else that defines your life. For the sake of Jesus, it is not worth holding on to. Third, you seek the kingdom. Isn't that what Jesus just said? If you were here with us on Ash Wednesday, he said to that rich man, who, or that man who made a claim on his brother's inheritance, he said, don't worry about money, don't worry about providing for yourself, seek the kingdom, that's what's most important. And all those other things will be given to you as well. And then finally, be honest with yourself about your sin and repent. As you walk towards the end of your life or the end of the world, be honest about who you are before God and seek his forgiveness and he will give it to you generously. He will purify you in baptism if you haven't been already. And if you have been, he will renew that promise to you every time I say, I forgive you in his name and feed you his body and blood. You can be free from the death that every person deserves. Trust in Jesus and prepare for his coming. And for those of you who are purified in him, rejoice. He is coming soon and he will make all things right. Let's pray. Jesus, you're coming is inevitable. And many of us struggle to believe that. Even those of us who are Christians, we live our lives thinking that things will continue to go on the way they always have. Work on our hearts. Send your Holy Spirit to crucify our flesh and its desires so that we can prepare ourselves like servants waiting for you to come back from your wedding banquet. And then bring us to be with you. And just fire a joy in our heart as we think about that. Ignite our imagination as we consider the beauty that you have for us. And let that be our guiding north star as we walk through this life. Lord, if there are those who are hearing my voice, whether in this room or later through the internet, who have not given their life to you, I ask that you would work on them. 
to lead them to the waters of baptism, to lead them to faith in your word and in your Savior, so they can be saved from that destruction that will come on all that is evil. We ask that if it be your will, we have the privilege of working with those people and bringing them into this local congregation as part of your family. We ask that in your name. Amen.